Let us cleave to our ancient wisdom and lift our voices and properly toast l'chaim, to life beyond our own, to the life of our grandchildren and their grandchildren. May they, God willing, know health and long life, but especially so that they may also know the pursuit of truth and righteousness and holiness. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 34, The Meaning of L'chaim. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Some 20 years ago, Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, said something that was simultaneously egregiously evil and enormously insightful. These are his words, quote, We have discovered how to hit the Jews where they are the most vulnerable. The Jews love life, so that is what we shall take away from them. We are going to win because we love death and they love life, end quote. The statement is evil because of Nasrallah's hatred of Israel and his worship of death. It is insightful, because Jews do indeed love life so. This love of life is captured in the most famous of Jewish toasts. As Leon Cass once put it, quote, You don't have to be Jewish to drink l'chaim, to lift a glass to life. Everyone in his right mind believes that life is good and that death is bad, but Jews have always had an unusually keen appreciation of life, and not only because it has been stolen from them so often and so cruelly. The celebration of life, of this life, not the next one, has from the beginning been central to Jewish ethical and religious sensibilities. In the Torah, be fruitful and multiply is God's first blessing and first command. Judaism from its inception rejected child sacrifice and regarded long life as a fitting divine reward for righteous living. At the same time, Cass continues, Judaism embraces medicine and the human activity of healing the sick. From the Torah, the rabbis deduced not only permission for doctors to heal, but also the positive obligation to do so. Indeed, so strong is this reverence for life that the duty of pikuach nefesh requires that Jews violate the holy Shabbat in order to save a life. Not by accident do we Jews raise our glasses. L'chaim. End quote. L'chaim, the Jewish love of life, defines Jewish history, and it lies at the heart of some of the most seemingly mysterious laws in Leviticus. We are introduced in Leviticus to the possibility of a person becoming impure, in Hebrew, tameh. In this state, one is forbidden from entering sacred spheres within the temple or tabernacle. At the heart of these rules is the biblical love of life and the belief, as we have previously discussed, that in this physical world, through the union of body and soul, earthly existence can be sanctified. Thus, any symbolic reminder of loss of life is kept far away from the sanctuary. It is important to stress that becoming impure is not forbidden and indeed is often obligatory. A man that has engaged in marital relations, such as described in Leviticus 15.16, or a woman that has given birth, as described in the opening of chapter 13, have both participated in activities central to the family and at the heart of Judaism. But because each has expended, at least temporarily, the life-giving power within them, they must undergo certain purification rituals before they enter certain sacred parts of the Temple Mount. One who has buried his or her beloved and come in contact with a dead body has performed an act of love and loyalty that is celebrated and obligated. But the mourner must then be purified from the association with death before going to the Temple. The same rationale can be given for the form of impurity that occupies Leviticus 13 and 14. 
called tsarat, it is usually defined as leprosy. But Jacob Milgram has shown that this translation is inaccurate. Tsarat is something for Leviticus that can afflict and render impure not only people, but also garments and houses. What precisely tsarat is, and whether it is a biological affliction, as Milgram suggests, or perhaps something supernatural, is, I think, beyond the realm of certainty. What is clear is that it too is a reminder of death. Its appearance portrays somehow the pallor of death and the disintegration involved in death. And it is therefore treated as a source of impurity requiring separation from others. And when it afflicts homes or clothing, it can require at times their destruction. As Milgram further points out, when in the book of Numbers, Miriam is punished with Tzarat for criticizing her brother Moses, Moses then prays for his sister and describes her as having a corpse-like appearance. Numbers 12.12, let her not, I pray, be as one dead of whom the flesh is half consumed. Thus, here too, the impurity of Tzarat is linked to the heart of the Jewish approach to holiness. It's linking love of life to sanctity. And Judaism, thereby, distinguishes itself from certain other philosophical and religious worldviews. The Jewish perspective is captured simply and sublimely in a short story by the great Yiddish writer Yitzchak Leibush Peretz. Peretz tells of a Hasidic leader, or Rebbe, who during the penitential season did not show up for prayers. The Rebbe's followers speculated that their leader had ascended to heaven to plead for mercy on behalf of his flock. There lived in that town, writes Peretz, a lone Litvak, a Jew of Lithuanian origin. Those are my people, by the way. Soloveitchiks are Litvaks. Who were known to be of a less mystical bent than their Hasidic brothers, devoted first and foremost to the minutiae of Jewish law. The Litvak scoffs at the community's suggestion that the Rebbe has ascended on high and cites the Talmud, which states that even Moses himself, when he ascended Sinai to receive the Torah, was barred from actually entering heaven. And so the Litvak stalks the rabbi to find out where he is going, follows him to the outskirts of town, where they come upon a shack in which lived an old and poor woman, blind and feeble. The Rebbe feeds the woman, takes care of her. And from that point on, writes Peretz, the once cynical Litvak became a follower of the Rebbe. And whenever the Hasidic shtetl dwellers would suggest that the Rebbe could be found in heaven, the Litvak would invariably respond, if not higher. Now, ladies and gentlemen, note well Peretz's literary maneuvers. Peretz does not make the Litvak into a standard Hasidic follower. The Hasidim still think that their Rebbe, as a truly righteous man, would seek to help his flock by escaping the world, transcending the world. That the Rebbe, if he was truly holy, would prefer heaven to earth. Whereas the Litvak, having followed the Rebbe, having seen what the Rebbe has done with his body, helping to feed this poor woman, has realized that that hovel of a hut has become higher than heaven itself. He realizes that no act exists in a vacuum. Rather, it has the power to sanctify, to endow physical earth with the glory of God through the performance of his will. This, as we have discussed, is why Judaism has divinely dictated laws that relate to every aspect of human existence. How we treat the elderly, but also what foods we eat, how and whom we marry, how we conduct business righteously, how we farm, how we build a home, how we live every aspect of our lives because we thereby elevate and sanctify every part of this world. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the true meaning of the words tikkun olam, 
this famous phrase is now terribly misused and misunderstood. Thus the famous joke about an American Jew visiting Israel who asks his guide, how do you say tikkun olam in Hebrew? But the actual words come from the Aleinu prayer, describing the Jewish aspiration, litaken olam b'malchut shakai, to fix the world through the kingdom of God. The liturgical point is that a common temptation of some versions of religion is to dismiss this world, to dismiss physical reality, to dismiss it as Socrates did as a land of shadows. But for Jews, the opposite is true. We believe in heaven. But we also believe that what we do here on earth turns this world into a sphere of holiness and that because it is on earth that we play this role, therefore what we do here is in a certain sense higher than what we do in heaven itself. Physical reality for Judaism is not transcended or avoided, but sanctified. And in an interesting way, rightly understood, the ritual of purification for a person afflicted with tzara'at, for a person known in Leviticus as mitzorah, highlights the fact that for Judaism, this world is not to be disdained, but rather claimed as a sphere in which holiness can be made manifest. Let us focus for a moment on this ceremony. Two birds are taken. One is slaughtered, and its blood is applied to the mitzorah, to the person afflicted with tzara'at, utilizing the other bird. Leviticus 14.14, Then shall the priest command to take for he that is to be cleansed two living, clean birds, and cedar wood, and scarlet, and hyssop. And the priest shall command to kill one of the birds in an earthly vessel over running water. As for the living bird, he shall take it, and the cedar wood, and the scarlet, and the hyssop, and shall dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle upon he that is to be cleansed from the tzara'at seven times, and shall pronounce him pure, and shall let go the living bird into the open field. What is going on here, ladies and gentlemen? The clue here is hyssop. Recall that the hyssop is utilized in adorning domiciles in Egypt with the blood of the paschal lamb. This, as we have explained, was an act of purification from paganism. The hyssop and the blood absorb the impurities in the home so that the divine could dwell amongst the Israelites and shield them, protect them from the plague. Thus, what is occurring here is that the blood, symbol of life, is utilized to draw the impurity from the person afflicted with tzara'at. That impurity is then transferred to the live bird who is let go and who flies away with it forever. Let us for a moment ponder the poetic symbolism of this text. Whereas often, holiness is thought of as achieved by escaping this world for heaven. Here the bird flies off, seemingly into higher realms, bearing the impurity, while the newly purified man, recovered from tzara'at, returns to the temple, to the life of Torah, to the life of sanctity here on earth. As Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik wrote in his masterpiece, Halachic Man, for Judaism, We as Jews seek not to escape the world, but to sanctify the world. The idea of Jewish law, in his words, quote, is the redemption of the world, not via a higher world, but via the world itself. Or as Rabbi Soloveitchik further added, quote, a lowly world is elevated through the halacha, Jewish law, to the level of a divine world, end quote. In a fascinating article, the Catholic theologian R.R. Reno reflected on how reading Rabbi Soloveitchik's writings can teach Christians to avoid the temptation of Gnosticism, 
of rejecting this world as evil. And how the Jewish approach of Soloveitchik outlines can allow readers to understand how physical existence can be sanctified. Reno writes that, quote, Soloveitchik has helped me see the larger significance of the Jewish metaphysical dream, one that sees the Torah as a gift and not a burden. The halacha, the all-encompassing array of divine imperatives, are as countless arrows of love shot downward and into human life. The more expansive and detailed the law, the more deeply and completely halachic man's life is penetrated by the divine. End quote. It is a beautiful description. Jewish law as arrows shot downward. Jewish law seeks not to escape this world, but to bring the holiness of heaven down here into earthly existence. The laws of ritual purity capture the union of sanctity and the Jewish love of life. And it is this latter love that has sustained us through the centuries against the forces of death that sought to destroy us. In 2017, a man by the name of Yisrael Kristal passed away in Israel. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, he was the oldest man on earth, but his life, more than others, embodied the Jewish love of life, not first and foremost because of his longevity, but because of how he had reacted to all the death that he had experienced. I cite the summary of Kristal's remarkable story given to us by Liel Leibovitz in Tablet. Quote, Moving to Lodge when he was 17, Kristal found work in a candy factory and soon proved himself as an expert candy maker. He married Chaya Fega Frucht in 1928 and had two daughters. He continued to manufacture candy, sometimes secretly, even after the Nazis took over and forced all of Lodge's Jews into the ghetto. Both of his children perished there. In 1944, when the ghetto was liquidated, Kristall and his wife were both deported to Auschwitz. Chayefega died shortly thereafter, but Yisrael survived, working as a forced laborer. When the Red Army liberated him, he thanked the Soviet soldiers by making them candy. He returned to Lodz, rebuilt his old candy shop, and met another woman, Batsheva, who he married in 1947. The couple had a son, Chaim, and a daughter, Shula. In 1950, Kristal and his family emigrated to Israel. They settled in Haifa, and Kristal found work at the Palata Candy Factory. A proud artisan, he soon went into business for himself, making his own sweets at his home kitchen and selling them at a local kiosk. Some of his innovations were first for the Jewish state. Jam made from carob, chocolate-covered orange peels, and most famous of all, tiny bottles of liquor made of chocolate and wrapped in tinfoil. He continued to work as a candy maker until his retirement and was a religiously observant grandfather of nine. Last year, he made headlines when he realized an old dream and celebrated his bar mitzvah a hundred years later. Huddling under his talus with his family, Kristal quipped about being the world's oldest tefillin-laying person. Then he got serious. Here's one person, he said, and look how many people he brought to life. And we're all standing here crowded under my talus. I'm thinking, six million people. Imagine the world they could have built. End quote. This is Leibovitz's wonderful summary. So consider, ladies and gentlemen, a man loses his entire family, and then he founds a family. A man experiences the most profound bitterness of life, and he lends sweetness to life. No one would have criticized Kristal had he lost his faith, but instead the oldest bar mitzvah boy in the world perpetuated the faith. The leader of Hezbollah was right, but he was also wrong. Jews do love life, 
And that is what so many of our enemies have attempted to take from us. But in the end, he is also wrong, because Nasrallah and his fellow forces of death will not win, for they can never take our love of life away from us, because it comes not merely from a love of pleasure, but from a desire to sanctify this world, to turn it into a realm that has the holiness of heaven, if not higher. Thus is the triumph of Jewish eternity contained in the seemingly simple word l'chaim, a toast to life that is not self-serving, but sanctifying. Leon Cass concludes his own understanding of l'chaim by noting that what we celebrate in the word is not our desire for physical immortality, but rather our dedication to the holy. And his description of the toast captures, I think, the life of Yisrael Kristal as well. Cass writes, quote, Let us cleave to our ancient wisdom and lift our voices and properly toast l'chaim, to life beyond our own, to the life of our grandchildren and their grandchildren. May they, God willing, know health and long life, but especially so that they may also know the pursuit of truth and righteousness and holiness. And may they hand down and perpetuate this pursuit of what is humanly finest to succeeding generations for all time to come. End quote. Amen. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.